Welcome to Inside West Point, Ideas at Impact. I'm Brigadier General Shane Reeves, the Dean of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Through a series of discussions, we will show you a different side of West Point, where we will make even our most complex initiatives accessible to broad audiences and give you an inside view to our cross-disciplinary work, which is being applied throughout the world. This episode of Inside West Point features the impactful work being done by Dr. Todd Davidson. Dr. Davidson is an assistant professor in the Department of Civil and Mechanical Engineering and an associate director of the Center for Innovation and Engineering at the United States Military Academy. He has taught courses on fluid mechanics, thermodynamics, and energy technology and policy. His work has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals and in national outlets, including Fortune, Forbes, and Bloomberg. He's also been interviewed by national media, including NPR's Marketplace and the New York Times and has testified before the Committee of Agricultural, Water, and Rural Affairs within the Texas State Senate. Before joining academia, Dr. Davidson was the CEO and co-founder of InCarbon Incorporated, a startup focused on the development of advanced energy storage devices. He's also worked as a systems engineer for Raytheon, where he was a team member on four different missile defense products. Dr. Davidson holds a BS in engineering science from Trinity University and an MS and PhD in mechanical engineering from UT Austin. Todd, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for Thank joining you. the podcast. Thanks for having me, sir. Before we discuss your research and your teaching, how did you end up at West Point? Sure. So, yeah, knowing that my background was in at, at UT, so actually in undergrad in a capstone project, this is where a lot of this began, in a capstone project, my senior design project, we built this junkyard gas turbine hmm. was our design challenge. And we went to our faculty members and asked them if we could do this. They thought we were crazy. They gave us something like $1,500 or $2,000. And we literally went and scavenged like an old turbo out of an old Mercedes and built this little gas turbine engine, this little jet engine. It was awesome. It was like, <laughs> you know, literally $2,000. Busted the oil pump, all this stuff. That got me into gas turbines. That got me into power generation for either keeping the lights on or electricity for electricity generation or for making our aircraft or vehicles operate more effectively. So in grad school, that in the interlude, I was also working at Raytheon, working on missile defense systems, which was an all, another exceptional opportunity, installing them up in Alaska, tracking them, slamming into each other over the Pacific, really extraordinary opportunities to be doing that soon after undergrad. And the gas turbine work really took off when I got to UT Austin. I worked with one of my great mentors, Dr. David Bogard, who was a leading thought leader in the space of gas turbines. And we were looking at, in short, if you run them hotter, they run more efficiently. So you get more bang for your buck, either more electricity or you get more propulsion for your aircraft. Simultaneously, that means you also reduce your cost or you reduce your environmental footprint for achieving the same outcome. So we were trying to get really smart on how do we operate these gas turbines at higher temperatures before they actually destroy themselves. They will literally destroy themselves if you run them too hot. So you got to get real creative on that stuff. So that then led me into the segue into the world of energy. Hmm. And energy became as now this deep passion of mine. But you can kind of see this confluence that happened for me, which is that I've always actually looked for opportunities and ways to serve in my own right, even though I'm not wearing green uniform. I've actually, as a civilian, often tried to find ways to serve, which was often, say, through Raytheon at that time, or by developing next generation engines that are quite literally in our F-35s. Or now the opportunity arose after working and teaching at UT Austin for a while, after I got my PhD, to then come up here and focus on teaching, mentoring our cadets, and continuing to expand the work that we do in the context of the Department of Defense. Has your time working in a startup been helpful in your transition to West Point? Without a doubt. 
founding a startup and running a startup, you will get 10 years of experience in, in two years. And it was an opportunity that I knew when it was presented or when we had this opportunity, I remembered, I think I will regret this if I don't try to go after it. Yeah. And so we went after it and we had some amazing successes. We partnered with the Air Force, we partnered with the Department of Energy. We got some really neat stuff done. But at the end of the day, our product, which was this graphene-based supercapacitor, this basically, imagine like a piece of paper that's except it's a single atom thick, which is graphene. Then you crumple it up and punch a bunch of holes in it, and you get this extraordinary surface area per unit weight. And that is really valuable for electrode materials that are in either batteries or supercapacitors, et cetera. And we were looking to do that for basically better energy storage systems. And you get a lot of experience very quickly if you have to try to get a company off the ground and manage everything along the way. Yeah. So your work focuses on the intersection between energy and defense, which has become increasingly important within, I I mean, it's always been important, but it has really gone to the forefront here, you know, in the last 10 to 20 years. Can you just help uh, our listeners understand what national defense has to do with energies, batteries, electrification, and how all that's connected? Sure. So if it's not already evident, I'm I'm definitely an energy nerd, and I I will (laughs) label myself accordingly. Proud of it. So I think the most important place to start on that question is the acknowledgement that energy is foundational to the advancement of the human condition, that with, without energy, humanity does not thrive. And that is abundantly evident in the fact that essentially every wealthy nation consumes a lot of energy. And then you get this feedback loop that all that wealth then drives additional energy consumption. The challenge with that then leads to the reality or recognition that all of the consumption does have very real environmental security issues or concerns from potential issues that may undermine the stability of society over time. And those issues may be directly related to climate change. They may also be just directly related to the fact that we're burning through resources that may be finite, which finite resources, if you and your neighbor are not very good friends and then one of you doesn't have water and the other one does, you may very well end up in significant conflict in the future. And that may be driven by resource constraint. It may be driven by climate change. It may be driven by human-induced activity just that is separate from climate change. And so all of these issues lead to what I, what a great mentor of mine, Dr. Michael Weber, once phrased it as, which is one of the grand challenges of our time. And in my opinion, yeah, one of the, if not the grand challenge of our time, is delivering clean, abundant, affordable energy to a growing global population while simultaneously trying to mitigate the effects of some of these energy security issues. Because if we don't, it does have the potential to be a very real issue that will impair our ability as humanity to thrive in the future. So how it's interrelated with defense, coming back to your initial question, it's so intricately linked that it's hard to even separate. It almost gets to the point where you could literally claim, without energy, I cannot have defense, and without defense, I do not have energy. So pivoting to your current research on these topics, what project or projects are you currently working on? Sure. So some of the projects that we're working on right now are in partnership with the Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment. The most, The one that I spend the most time on is thinking about electrification 
of the federal fleet within the context of the U.S. Army climate strategy. And so there are very real goals in the Army climate strategy focused on how do we sort of accelerate electrification of the fleet, which comes with significant opportunities and challenges. And so we've got a team of five cadets from systems and civil and mechanical engineering programs looking at what are these challenges, what are these opportunities to both reduce our environmental footprint, improve our resilience, maintain, if not improve, our mission capability, and reduce our cost and environmental footprint along the way. So that project then leads to trying to figure out, okay, where and what vehicles are viable to be replaced as electric vehicles. And specifically, I'm talking about the non-tactical fleet for the moment. Happy to talk about tactical if you'd like. Where and what vehicles could we replace? Is there regional dependence? You know, in the, in the United States, the grid is not, is not uniform, right? Which means that the carbon intensity of the grid is different in different places. Now, for the most part, the grid is decarbonizing, which means that for the most part, most places, vast majority of places, an electric vehicle really is, has lower life cycle emissions than a conventional internal combustion engine. But there are other challenges that are at play, which is that you need to drive an electric vehicle for a while before you get a break-even point. And that break-even point might be on the order of fifteen to 20,000 miles. For the common consumer, that's easily done. In one year or two, you may break even. And now from then on, basically the electric vehicle has lower carbon emissions on a life cycle basis than a, a standard internal combustion engine. But if we don't drive our vehicles a lot, if we have fleets of vehicles that are sitting in a parking lot because we're underutilizing them or we're buying too many vehicles, you get into a dilemma of, well, I have all these vehicles, but now I've just parked them. And you've got to, you basically have to use an electric vehicle for the carbon emissions to pay off. But you also get into other really fascinating stuff, which is electric vehicles are, are mobile power sources. And so from a resilience and from a resiliency standpoint, from a, a reliability standpoint, you now have power sources that can eventually essentially move and immediately provide electric power. We see that in the Ford F-150 Lightning. We see that in other hybrids that have immediately power takeoffs that are now available on some of these trucks. We could do something similar with internal combustion engines as well, but we have these inevitable trade-offs. What is the goal? What is the outcome that we're trying to achieve? So the U.S. Army climate strategy sets these big aspirational targets that we're trying to help ASAI and E try to aspire to understand how we get there. You mentioned cadets and how they're plugged into these research efforts. And of course, so much of what we do here is the connection between research, education, and cadet development. And our mission is to educate, train, inspire the core cadets to be officers in our army. And so can you just talk a little bit about how you see the connection between these efforts and those cadets that are involved in that and how this is helping them develop into being you know, effective and long-term future officers? So this being potentially one of those grand challenges, I think it is of critical importance that our army officers understand the context of this problem. And so, so far, much of the problem that I've described has been kind of a civilian-focused issue with regards to, say, either directly cost or directly emissions. But let's try to put it in the context of the Army as well, specifically in the, yeah, in the context of the Department of Defense and specifically the Army. So by some measures, right, we have spent upwards of $100 per gallon of fuel to get fuel into the battlefield in certain places, in certain theaters in recent years or in recent conflicts. We have, by some measures, had around 50% of our casualties associated with water and fuel supply lines. We have seen situations where nearly 50% of our fuel consumption of Abrams tanks has been associated with idling 
not actually really even achieving a mission, just literally sitting idle. An Abrams tank has a gas turbine engine, literally like a jet engine that's in the back of it, and it's just churning through JP-8 sitting on the battlefield, which then results in us needing more fuel, more water, et cetera, being brought to the battlefield. If we can reduce the need for fuel and water in the battlefield, it is quite literally saving both dollars and more importantly, lives. And so the, the confluence of this issue, while sometimes is, is focused just on climate change, it's incredibly critical to recognize that this is all a win. If we reduce our fuel consumption, our water needs, we will quite literally create a more capable fighting force for the American public, but we will simultaneously reduce our environmental footprint and the cost of the American taxpayer. So it's all a win if we can get better at thinking about how do we improve our systems, our energy and water systems. That is so critical for our future Army officers to understand the complexity of this problem. The other aspect that I haven't really even touched on yet, right, that because as an engineer, I have a tendency to talk about engineering and energy issues, et cetera, right, get kind of wonky into the technical details. But there are so many aspects of this problem that are not technical, that are exceptionally challenging problems. There's financial issues, there's legal issues, there's human dynamic issues and social issues associated with all these problems, which is why it becomes such a fascinating and challenging interdisciplinary project which is why it's perfect for it to be here at a place like West Point across all of our departments. I think a great segue into a discussion on a new and very innovative organization at West Point known as the CERC. Very much an interdisciplinary approach to some of these problems. So first off, what does the CERC stand for? Sure. So I'm not going to say it. <laughs> in classic Army fashion, we've got a great acronym. But actually, we are very, very happy of this name because it, it really encompasses everything that we're talking about, which is CERC is the Sustainable Infrastructure Resilience and Climate Consortium. And it's very purposefully acknowledging all three of those issues, sustainable infrastructure, resilience, and climate, because they were all critical issues to the Department of Defense and the American public more broadly. So CERC is a collaboration between multiple departments here at the academy. The initial departments that helped get this off the ground were chemistry and life science, geography, environmental engineering, as well as the Department of Civil and Mechanical Engineering, which is where I reside. And what was the impetus for it? So part of the impetus was a community of, I guess, like-minded individuals, both officers as well as civilians, acknowledging and understanding what this grand challenge is. There's nearly every single department, somebody is touching upon either the technical, the legal, the humanity, the financial, some aspect associated with energy or resilience or climate in one form or another. So it's really a pretty exceptional blend of people who have deep technical expertise, huge number of PhDs that are, exist here, right, within the context of the Army, but also these civilians and these Army officers who bring this amazing understanding of what is really needed to accomplish our mission in the field. And so we have to be very practical within the Army, right? We have to, we've got to make sure that we're going to be able to complete the mission of what we need to be able to do. And there's no better people to be able to help us understand that problem than Army officers. And so the confluence of both civilians as well as Army officers with PhDs, it's an amazing environment, ecosystem, if you will, to talk about this level of a grand challenge because it's such an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary issue that we got to address. I think that's one of the things that makes the CERC so interesting to me is you're collaborating at the very beginning. Yep. Uh, you may say, hey, there's a technical question here, but we probably should go talk to 
someone from the you know from the law department or we should go talk to somebody from you know who knows a little bit more about about you know strategy and you all collaborate at the beginning and trying to solve the problem in a collaborative way so that when you get to the solution at the end it's not putting it together it's already been looked at from a multifaceted approach and comes up with a very comprehensive answer or solution which i think is what makes the circ so Agreed. so exciting how are cadets involved with the circ independent studies are opportunities for us to bring in cadets of essentially any year to work directly with a faculty member on projects either of their direct interest or of direct interest that is a project that may already be running with our faculty members. And those projects have spanned everything from understanding like wastewater treatment to I, I know people that are working on sort of machine learning and how is that going to help us understand our energy consumption across the entire DOD landscape. So the independent studies are a really great way to then bring our cadets into the fold early on, which then helps mature them towards opportunities like AID. So this last year, we had a couple of AIDs, Cadet Greg Lugoni and Cadet Marley Waite, go down and visit with our exceptional partners down with the Assistant Secretary of the Office, Installations, Energy, and Environment, ASAIE. So they were down, literally embedded in their office in the Pentagon, working on these issues of problems that are contemporary for that very day, hearing problems that leadership, civilian and officer leadership are dealing with in the Pentagon associated with, okay, how do I improve the resilience of an installation, whether it be a hurricane or some climate-induced issue, or it's a, a man-made impact of somebody attacking infrastructure. Either way, I we want our future officers to understand how do I make an installation more resilient, particularly if it's a power projection platform so that we can get people out if we have to. And so other opportunities that we have had, then that helps mature our cadets into eventually what lands them in their capstone. And the capstone opportunities exist in essentially all of our departments. And now through CERC produces or creates an impetus and an opportunity to have really transdisciplinary, as you note, capstone efforts across multiple departments focused on some of these issues. Again, one of the things that makes that exciting to me is there's a historic problem, not just exclusive to West Point, but in all of higher education about breaking down silos between disciplines, getting disciplinary experts and their students working together on a problem. And I think this is actually a almost a pilot for a broader effort here at the Academy to try to drive innovation more in this transdisciplinary way, because one of the things that the Academy has going for it is this, as you highlighted, this extraordinary number of PhDs that are concentrated here, but they're spread across a very broad academic program that ranges from STEM to humanities to social sciences. And if you can bring all that together to look at a problem, that's very powerful. So with that being said, what are some of the specific outputs that you're looking for from the CERC in the short term and maybe the long term? Sure. Let's start from the single most important thing, which is precisely what ASAIE helped understand the vision of why we were establishing CERC when they helped provide support, which is that the CERC is intended to help enhance our educational and research initiatives on this topic for the betterment of our cadets to ensure that when they commission a second lieutenants, that they understand the complexity of this problem. So that's first and foremost, that's our driving mission. But out of that, from that, there are opportunities for CERC to help contribute to these problems that the Army and DOD is dealing with more broadly. And so some of that might be quite literally actionable information on, you know, essentially 
speaking with some of our partners in ASAINE, essentially saying, sir or ma'am, we need to execute like this versus this in terms of deploying electric vehicles to ensure that we both reduce our environmental footprint, that we reduce our costs, that we maximize our resilience, our reliability for our installations and our vehicles. So I, I believe that CERC has a really unique role to play within the Army to help not only mature our second lieutenants, but also our second and third graduating classes, our rotating officers who come back through and teach here at West Point to look and understand the complexity of this problem and then roll back out into the force and say, hey, you know, maybe we should be installing heat pumps at this installation instead of using an oil burner or a natural gas burner because it really is more efficient. And now modern heat pumps really can give me the temperatures that I need even in Fort Drum. And so those type of solutions that exist out in the marketplace, we can bring them into our installations to make them more energy efficient, to potentially reduce our cost, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, that CERC has to play. Any lessons that you learned from starting a, a company that has helped you in, in this beginning of standing up this consortium known as the CERC? Partnerships are incredibly valuable. In the sense, and what I mean by that is, is finding and understanding what our other departments and players here at the academy want and need. And if we have an aligned vision, and that aligned vision being that we need to do our very best to educate these young men and women in in a way that will ensure that they contribute to the nation. And fortunately, here at the academy, we actually do have an ecosystem where for the most part, we are incredibly aligned on that. It's an amazing place because we all, from my perspective, as a relative newcomer here, we really do have a shared vision as to why we're doing what we're doing. Now, of course, there's always some conflict of how should we execute, but at the end of the day, it's, no, we, we need to row this boat or drive this tank, depending on your perspective, <laughs> in together. And if we can think about it that way, which is the same way that I think you need to consider how to build and create a startup, it's we need to find partners and growth from that perspective, essentially grow the pie together. Yeah. How, how has all of this tied into how you are teaching the cadets? Like when, how, how much of this do you take into the classroom with you? I try to take a lot. And so that is the courses that I have taught. I think it's so relevant to all of these topics. So think about fluid mechanics, just one. So thermodynamics and energy conversion systems, those, if you're familiar with the space, like those immediately sound, okay, well, that's got to be something associated with energy. Well, let's talk about fluid mechanics, maybe for one cent moment to kind of steel man the, the conversation. Fluid mechanics, the United States Army Corps of Engineers is the single largest producer of hydroelectric power in the United States. Well, there's an enormous opportunity for our engineers who graduate from here, go into the engineering corps to be aware of that and to be aware of that you say essentially has all of these amazing assets in their control that could quite literally help us continue to modernize our electric grid and use those, for instance, like pumped hydro storage. I had a cadet, cadet Kyle Cass working on a pump storage hydro project to try to figure out, can we use USACE facilities to essentially store wind and solar at times that it's running, pump water uphill, and then run it back downhill when wind and solar are not operating well. 
And so these issues can really help mitigate some of the civilian concerns that we see in certain parts of the grid, but it also has an opportunity to then say like leverage our USACE assets better and better. So there's just, there's great opportunity across the board. That's amazing. Okay. So the U.S. Army has a climate strategy that's focused on installation energy resilience, as you know, also discussion on electrification of vehicles and more. How does all that relate to the CERC? So the Russians attacked Ukrainian infrastructure for a reason. Now, the legal implications of that are significant. The human implications, the, the military implications and stuff are very real. But I bring this up to acknowledge that infrastructure is a target. And energy infrastructure specifically is a target. Because if you think about sort of the cascading reliance on energy, it's just immense. It's arguably the single most important thing for us to be able to execute a mission. You think about communications, right? Your battery's only going to potentially last so long. And we need to be able to recharge either from a hydrocarbon standpoint or an electrical standpoint in order to complete our mission. If you start taking out energy infrastructure in the civilian sector, of course, it's that cascading impact on human welfare is so immense, it's hard to really calculate. Now, I have to applaud the Ukrainians in terms of their <laughs> in terms of their resilience, in terms of fixing the grid quickly. But I, I bring that up to just try to really drive home the fact, this idea of energy security nexus. And we have the same challenges or issues that we have to think about on the continental United States, because particularly with interconnected re- nature of the internet, we, Fortress America is, remains a fortress, but it's a different fortress than it was not that long ago. And as a result, you know, we had a cyber attack on a colonial pipeline, I think, what was it, two years ago at this standpoint, and it took out essentially 50% of hydrocarbon supply to the East Coast. I mean, wow. And you think about what that could do to our local installations, it's significant. So then coming back to your question, how do we think about what's happening with our installations? Whether it's man-made, a man-made issue from a bad actor, or it's a climate-driven or a weather issue, or it's a typical resilience thing from, say, earthquakes or whatever it might be, we've got to be aware of these threats that are either immediately here or on the horizon. That's interesting. The United States has designated 16 critical infrastructure categories. And your point about the colonial pipeline, there's been a lot of concern about cyber attacks and all these others. And so the CERC potentially has the opportunity to take some of its work and help to focus on not just energy resilience, but also, as you pointed out, as you called it, Fortress America, just resilience from some form of attack in a different continuum, whether it's cyber and, and others. But is the CERC thinking broadly like that? Is it, is it reached out to those who think about cyber attacks? What, are they, is it reached out to other forms of energy? Where does nuclear energy fit into all of this discussion? So how broad do you see the CERC becoming in, in discussing these issues? Great question. So we have significant appetite, but our stomachs are only so large. <laughs> so I would offer up that I think we're trying to remain kind of laser focused on issues that are directly related to what we would kind of conventionally describe as sustainability, resilience within the context of energy and water, and then and, and potentially climate-related issues. Cyber, we've definitely talked about it, but I think for now it is not our immediate focus, even though we acknowledge that, acknowledge that this is a clear threat to our infrastructure, but we have to, in many ways, 
leverage the expertise of our EECS brothers and sisters, electrical engineering, computer science, to then better understand how, how can West Point pl- continue to play a role from a cybersecurity standpoint, and of course, we're standing up to SEAC, to understand how does cyber play a role in the future as directly associated with CERC. We would love to see that being an opportunity for us to continue. We are beginning to set up essentially a community of interest around CERC, and it may very well become a, a critical part of the conversation. To your other question about nuclear and how does that play, major topic. Small module reactors do have the potential to bring down costs of nuclear power in a real way. Compared to like Vogel 3 and 4 just went online, they're the most recent uh, nuclear power plant in the United States. They were extraordinarily expensive. However, they're also exceptionally resilient. And in the context of the Department of Defense, yeah, micro-reactors, small modular reactors have a really interesting role to play, I believe, in the not-too-distant future of improving the resilience of our installations. And I would go so far to say that we should probably be giving real consideration, and I know we actually in many ways are, to how do we incorporate these into critical infrastructure in places where we really believe we, we, we cannot lose power to these certain areas or this larger installation or whatever it might be. Because you get into a question of, okay, well, is it better to have a backup diesel generator? Or if we want to aspire to really essentially go net zero, which is what is in our U.S. Army climate strategy, how are we accomplishing that? Are we accomplishing it with wind and solar, with batteries, backup power generation? Is nuclear in play? Project Pele is a real thing. And the Department of Defense. Pele? It's an effort, collaboration between the Department of Defense and Department of Energy to build the equivalent of tactical micro reactors or small modular reactors, depending on your definition of what micro versus small is, delivering something on the order of one to five megawatts. So, to put that in context, a house, typical house in the United States, consumes around one kilowatt. So one megawatt is like a thousand homes. Five megawatts is like 5,000 homes. So it's real power and it's power that can be turned on at any moment and continue running. Now there are real tactical questions and implications about small modular reactors, but they're re- it's a real concept that should be continued to be explored in my opinion. Yeah. So I'm going to take this back to your discussion about electrification of the Army's non-tactical fleet of vehicles. Can you just transition and talk about the tactical fleet of vehicles? Sure. So tactical brings in all sorts of other challenges. And the primary thing that I would want to lead off with is that this conversation that we have about these the, the multi-tiered priorities that we have of you know having clean, abundant, affordable, reliable energy, et cetera, it requires us to then potentially change or rethink about, okay, we have to now put that in the context of the DOD and specifically the U.S. Army. And I think it's critical to lead off this conversation with saying that, in my opinion, as well as every leader that I've heard in this space from the Pentagon and elsewhere, acknowledge and immediately say up front, we're not going to do anything that reduces the tactical capability or the ability of our vehicles to operate in the way that they need to operate. I have quite literally stood in front of my some of the cadets and such that I have mentored, acknowledging and thinking about that I would never advocate for something that would 
put their lives at risk because it has potentially a change or lesser difference in tactical capability. That is first and foremost in my mind. With that said, there are unique and non-obvious issues associated that may be real immense opportunities for doing things like electrifying a tactical fleet. So one of those was just in a great conversation with Colonel Mark Reed about this as a scout. So in a scout position, think about the immense tactical advantage there is, and I credit him for bringing this up the other day, and I saw it also at Detroit Arsenal a handful of months ago, but think about the immense tactical advantage that there is for having a vehicle that is essentially completely silent, as well as having essentially no thermal signature. Poof, it disappears. And so compared to our current internal combustion engines, that is a unique tactical advantage that some of these EVs could bring to the table. Now, how they fill that role, whether it's a hybridized system or a fully electric system, those are kind of the million or hundred million dollar questions yeah. that we're, we are wrestling with right now. Where's the single point of failure? Is it the grid? I mean, I, under, I totally understand the tactical advantage of a silent electrified vehicle, but they still have to get the energy from somewhere. And I know I'm not, this isn't my space, so I'm trying to just somewhat where somehow energy is being produced that's, that is fueling all this. So where is that coming from? That's exactly right. So one of the ways that we describe energy, or I think an important way to describe energy is thinking about energy as either primary energy supplies or secondary energy supplies. And a primary energy supply comes from something that essentially exists naturally. So whether it be the sun that's tossing photons onto the surface of the earth all day long, whether it is uh, hydrocarbons, whether it be oil-based or natural gas that's in the ground, whether it be biomass, whether it be tidal energy, those are all primary energy supplies. Secondary energy supplies are things that we then refine or do something to the primary energy to then create a secondary source. So a secondary source would be like gasoline or hydrogen or electricity. And so to get electricity, we have to harness an initial primary energy supply. And that's right there, you hit the nail on the head because that is, that's the challenge associated with tactical vehicles, electrifying tactical vehicles, because I still need a primary energy supply. And so if I still have to get energy to the battlefield, so I need to either figure out a way to harness a ton of solar power. I need to consider, can I hook up to a grid locally if I have a friendly players in the space? I either need to bring, continue to bring a lot of JP-8 to the battlefield, or I'm bringing a nuclear reactor to the field. All have immense trade-offs. So believe me, this again emphasizes there is no easy answer in a lot of this conversation, which is why it needs to be across multiple departments, multiple people trying to figure this thing out. If we bring JP-8 to the battlefield, okay, are we actually reducing our carbon emissions? Are we actually improving our tactical advantage? It's not immediately clear right now. But if we can hybridize vehicles, which we are doing, putting anti-idle on tanks, et cetera, then yes, immediate advantage, immediate win. Even if I'm continuing to burn JP-8, I have an immediate win in terms of hybridizing or going partially electric vehicles. It's then that next step of, okay, well, now I've got to get into a fully electrified vehicle fleet. How am I bringing, what primary energy supply am I harnessing in order to supply that, that fully electrified tactical fleet? And there's not an immediate answer to that. I will offer up, though, that one issue that I don't think it's addressed enough in this conversation is that most people, we focus on that huge problem that I just acknowledged. 
what I don't think we're actually fully acknowledging is that vehicles of the future may look very different than they do now. And changing those vehicles, whether it be through robotics or UAVs or whatever it might be, may totally change the landscape of what a future battlefield looks like. And as a result, the energy supply to those vehicles may be very different, or the supply line for energy to those vehicles may be very different. And it may actually enable opportunities to electrify them more than one would immediately assume. Yeah, that's that's interesting because, I mean, immediately my mind did go to what you said, which is this getting the cart before the horse, right? Are you solving one problem but not addressing the big problem? Because there are, I think, a few facts you could assume, especially as you pointed out, we're looking at this from a military necessity perspective, which is like, what is our imperative to do these things? And you can assume that we're going to be expeditionary. And you can assume, I, I think these are actually probably, I don't know if they're quite facts, but they're pretty close. And you can assume you're going to need lots of energy to be able to fuel any type of you know, fleet of tactical vehicles that are going to be required to go long distances. Yeah. And so I'm glad to hear that we're thinking ab- about all this. But your point about how the vehicles may look differently, that may be true in the future, but as of right now, we, we're pretty much set on what we have, or at least it looks like we're going to have really heavy armored vehicles that have to move and fueling them in a, you know, with you know, an electrified way, not a hybrid, but electrified. Is that realistic? Is that something that we, like, we, we could see in the next few years? Or are we talking you know, 50 years into the future? So this is not fielded right now, but at AUSA, General Dynamics had, was showing the Abrams X, which is a hybridized Abrams. And the electric motor that they had in there was downsized. I think it was 200 kilowatts. But if they, if I think, so don't quote me on that number, but if. Well, I don't know what a kilowatt is anyway. <laughs> close to horsepower. <laughs> so if, if that motor gets upgraded, you could have uh, a vehicle that has as much, if not more torque than the existing gas turbine. And with no with no reduction in capability in terms of like eighty tons and be able to move correct. as far and as fast. Well, now the the weight of that vehicle was less because of the engine. Because of the engine, as well as they modified. Well, I, I don't want to speak at it on at length because it's not my that specific vehicle is not my area of expertise. But they modified a number of things, including an auto loader and a handful of things mm-hmm. that that changed the vehicle. And I believe it is less than the sort of standard eighty tons, but. That's an immediate vision where you can see an opportunity to reduce uh, fuel. We were just out in Detroit in the fall and saw a hybridized Bradley. And it's the real deal. I, lit- I saw it driving around the test track. And we were at GM Defense and we saw light duty, fully electrified vehicles. And I mean, you step on the quote unquote gas, you step on the accelerator and it's going to slam you into the back of the seat in ways that, I mean, we don't typically see with an internal combustion engine. And there, there are unique tactical advantages to these things that are worth continuing to explore and kind of push the envelope on yeah. without a doubt. Thank you. So I'm just going to ask you a few, we're going to change subject just a little bit, sure. but uh, you began your career in industry, as we've pointed out, and then you started teaching in academia at the University of Texas at Austin, and now you're here at West Point. What would you say to others that that are coming from maybe a civilian background or from industry who may be considering taking a teaching and research position at West Point? I would offer up that one, it's an, it is an incredible place where I've seen that the institution right has a driving mission. There's We've got a North Star, which I think is amazing. I would also offer up that teaching 
these young men and women is an exceptional opportunity to leave a positive wake. And that phrase to me is something that's, it's a really important phrase to me. The idea of leaving a positive wake that essentially propagates across society is, I think, really powerful idea that can be a major motivator for why one would want to teach. And it's a very unique place to do that because we have an opportunity to work with these young men and women that will go on to eventually be leaders in our society. What has surprised you about cadets? It is remarkable how hard they are working. I did not go to a, a service academy as an undergrad, and I, I worked hard, but on average, it's just they're cranking. They're rowing hard or running hard, depending on your perspective. So they're incredibly, uh, for the most part, polite. And when I told a friend from, I think he was a professor at University of Arizona, like, essentially emeritus, and I said, you know, when it when class starts at whatever, 1440 or 240, if you're a civilian, <laughs> like class actually starts, like everybody's there and they stand up and they acknowledge you, and <laughs> they're ready to roll. And which is a unique thing compared to most institutions. So it's just a very unique, fun place to work. So what's your favorite army vehicle? It, I mean, we've talked about it a number of times. I guess it's hard to not acknowledge the capacity or capability of the Abrams. It's yeah. just the truth. But I will offer up as well that I think vehicles could look pretty different in the future. So I'm, it'll be neat. It'll be interesting to see how this, no, this plays out. That's a fascinating thought. Okay, so, well, thanks, Todd. Thanks for sharing your impactful ideas with us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please be sure to tune in to the Inside West Point Ideas That Impact podcast next month. Remember, you can find this podcast as well as the other podcast, journals, and books hosted or published by the West Point Press at westpointpress.com. Until next time.